Hello and welcome to Brokenomics. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about China with two superb analysts from China Uncensored. We've got Chris and Shelley. Guys, thanks for coming. Thanks for coming on. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks. definitely. So what is it that tell us about China Uncensored and what is it that got you guys into this? So I think the big thing is, you know, now in 2023, most people understand that the Chinese Communist Party is a threat and having a real impact on the United States and around the world. But when we started the show in 2012, everyone, it was still kind of in the post 2008 Olympic days people had, uh, they saw the opening ceremonies and were like, oh wow, China's amazing, it's up and coming, it's so different than uh, that Tiananmen Square massacre era that was only about 20 years before. Uh, and yeah, people just didn't know anything about China. They like I talked to people and they still thought China was a democracy because they have a quote unquote president. So we wanted to just get the word out that the Chinese Communist Party, communism, it is a real and present threat. Uh, the Cold War, the second Cold War has been going on for a long time and just people weren't aware. And we thought if we used a little bit of humor, some sarcasm, maybe we could get a little more people to actually watch. Well, it's fantastically successful. I know you've got uh, you know a huge viewership, so clearly you're resonating with people. It seems that way. I love hearing uh, comments from people. We have a great comment section. YouTube comment sections can be sometimes dumpster fires, but I think yes. we have a really good community on the show. Fantastic. And Shelley, yeah, Shelley, what's your background? I was born in China. Um, came to the U.S. fairly young when I was about four years old, and um, my interest in China was primarily cultural until uh, I was a teenager and then I had some family friends who were arrested uh, in China for practicing Falun Gong. So, and these were family friends who had been literally visiting my parents and I like a month before in America and we took them to Washington DC in the White House and we we're walking around the Capitol building and then a month later they were literally um, taken to a police station. Um, so it was like a very dramatic uh, thing. And they had a daughter who was my age, who was basically left orphaned at home um, because both of her parents were suddenly arrested. So it was kind of, for me, like okay. a political awakening in terms of like what the Chinese Communist Party actually was, because my parents had lived through the Cultural Revolution, they had lived through the famine, but they kind of tried to shield my sister and I from the reality of the political situation. Um, my uncle had been protesting on Tiananmen Square as a student, but uh, you know, like I knew about these things, but like I was so young that I couldn't really grasp what they actually meant for the lives of the people in China at the time. So, you know, after like my mother's best friend spent, you know, five years in prison and she came out like blind in her left eye from being electrocuted by cattle prods, like that was like a huge change in how I viewed um, the country where I was born. And I had been very proud to be a Chinese person and it was a huge shock to my system. So like that's when I started doing a lot of like human rights work with like Amnesty International in college and things like that. And eventually that led me to um, doing journalism, initially like financial journalism related to China and then kind of, uh, met Chris um, through my sister, actually, they were going to college together. And like eventually when Chris 
um, came up with the idea of trying to uncensor Like I was like, this is what I've always wanted to do. I've oh, always totally. wanted to have a show that's like the daily show, but for China. Um, but I didn't think anybody could pull it off. And then Chris did. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's been enormously successful. And actually I wasn't going to ask about uh, historic topics, but since you brought it up, let, let's touch on Tiananmen Square because, um, the, I, I remember the way it was portrayed here in the West. It was portrayed as if it was a, a, an uprising for um, uh, democracy, as if um, you know Chinese people were looking to vote for their local town council or whatever it is. Uh, I, I've heard a lot of takes since that actually it was an economically-led uh, issue, that inflation had been high and unemployment was getting out of hand, um, and, and it was primarily that sort of pushback against that. What's your perspective, having had family members who were actually there. What was what was Tiananmen Square actually all about? I mean, I think initially what happened was that the Communist Party had decided in the 80s to do economic reforms because essentially their economy was dying. Uh, so there was a lot more economic freedom suddenly. And uh, I think that was definitely the catalyst for a lot of students deciding that, you know, with economic freedom, maybe this is also the time to ask for more political freedom. And it wasn't initially that people were asking for, you know, a democratic system because they didn't really understand what that meant. Like they grew up under a communist system, but they were asking for the communist system to give them more political rights and freedoms the way that they were slowly expanding to more economic rights and freedoms. Uh, but in the end, the Communist Party, like the essentially wasn't interested in that. And I think it was clear now that we know in retrospect that they were always going to politically crack down on the students. But at the time, I think the students had a lot of hope that, you know, the party could reform. I mean, we, a few years ago, uh, we interviewed um, a man who was a uh, student protester in the Tiananmen Square, and he had his legs crushed by a tank uh, when the tanks rolled in. And so he's like he lost his legs um, and it took him many years to get out of China. But he told us that at the time, like he felt like they were a bit naive about the communist party, that they felt like, you know, their parents lived under the cultural revolution, but they didn't tell them what had happened during the cultural revolution. So like they were naive and felt like the party could reform, that they could ask for reforms from the party. And so he said that now one of the things he does is like talk to young Chinese people about Tiananmen Square, which many people don't know actually happened. I have, you know, multiple friends who had to learn about it after leaving China. Like, oh, so, so it's common for Chinese young people not to know anything about Tiananmen Square? Either not to know anything or to be told that like it was, you know, when the students attacked the soldiers um, and the students were very violent and they were the ones who caused like all this bloodshed. Um, but I think I as the years goes by, go by, the more common narrative is that, you know, no, nobody knows anything about it at all. Okay, that's interesting. And, and you touched on, of course, it was, it, it, it started from those grants of economic freedoms. And, and, the, and the Chinese have had that period of, of economic expansion. But I, I guess my first question ha has to be to you, how sustainable is that economic expansion? And I'm thinking there particularly in terms of um, we, we've seen a large credit boom in China. We've seen um, a large housing boom. And a lot of these things feel very unsustainable. So how sustainable is this economic model that they've been running, that, that, that they've based their success on? Well, I think first I just want to provide a little bit of context to the idea that the Chinese Communist Party gave economic freedom 
like under Mao, mm. basically, China did not have an economy. People were forced into communes, collectivized farms. It was a disaster. There was mass famine, cannibalism. Uh, so, you know, when he, Mao died, there was, you know, obviously a realization that eh, that didn't really work very well. But the economic freedom was still very minuscule. Chinese people still were never allowed to unionize. Obviously, they had no freedom of speech to protest for better wages or better rights. Um, still, the economy was controlled mainly by state-owned corporations, or even after things became more privatized, they were still companies run by the sons and daughters of top communist officials. You still basically have to be a Communist Party member to reach an upper echelon of Chinese society. So the Chinese Communist Party still has tremendous control over all levels of society, including the economy. So when we say there was more economic freedom in China, there's an asterisk next to that. Uh, freedom in under communism. The, the, the challenge is put to me often, you know, the, 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 we often talk on this channel about how the West is um, facing uh, a, a severe credit boom um, and, and the issues that they're running up against that, this, 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 this constant credit expansion. But that's also been happening in, in China. And China have also got the added complication of the, of the credit boom that we've experienced, coupled with the, um, the boom that we had back in 2008, which is that housing boom. You've got these large, um, this sort of uh, cultural uh, push to invest in property rather than perhaps what the Western model, which is a, which is more towards you know stock investing and, and perhaps crypto and, and, and a number of other things. So I'm I'm just wondering, you know, how how close do you feel that this is to a to a real fission point? So we just actually talked to a uh, an expert who specializes in the Chinese economy. His name's Christopher Balding. He made a very good point. He says that the Chinese economy has reached its event horizon. Uh, and the event horizon, that's the point where when you get too close to a black hole, you can't escape. You're going to be sucked in to the black hole. Period. Uh, and you sort of see this kind of the brilliance of how the Chinese Communist Party leveraged the state control over its economy for propaganda purposes. Mm. So 2008, there was a crash. Uh, certainly, it made the Western economic systems and the Western powers seem pretty weak and bad. Uh, essentially, what China did with the communist state control of the country was just build everything around debt, uh, f f uh, you know, funding massive infrastructure projects. Uh, so it kind of created uh, an artificial boom. And this had a really profound propaganda effect because number one, for Chinese people, who as Shelley was mentioning, people who grew up under the Cultural Revolution, time where China had absolutely nothing, suddenly they see all these skyscrapers going up. Their little podunk town now has a, a, a big airport. Uh, so to them, it's, it seems like, hey, China's really massively building up. Um, and to Western observers, it's like, hey, a lot of the infrastructure in the West is crumbling and in decay. China's building all this new stuff. This is fantastic. They must really have something to their system. It, it's a sort a of constant influx. meme that you see on Twitter of the of the, the, the Shanghai by night, and it looks absolutely fabulous. Yes, yes, exactly. That's very powerful propaganda. And keep in mind, most of China does not look like that. China today is still a very, very poor country. Mm. I think it's 
like 600 million people still make less than $10 a day. Uh, it's, it's still a very poor country, but there is this show that really attracted a lot of Western investors and people like Michael Bloomberg, uh, who see, you know, Hey, hey China can build bridges. The problem is, you know, like some village in the middle of nowhere doesn't need a massive airport that's not based on the market. And so the, as this debt bubble kept growing and growing, the Chinese Communist Party managed to keep kicking things down the line. There was a big stock market crash a few years ago. They kind of saved that by pumping everything into real estate. The real estate is exploding now. Uh, and you've basically come to the inevitable conclusion of their economic model, one of just constant pumping in debt. And now they're reaching a point where it's just not sustainable. Yeah, I would say that it, it isn't so much that like culturally Chinese people want to invest everything in property. It is that historically there haven't been anything that they could invest in. Mm. Um, like until the nineties, you could not even own property in China privately. Like if you had an apartment that was given to you by your workplace, which is like a state owned workplace, you work in a work unit, you're assigned an apartment, you know, kind of like, you know, Soviet Union style. Uh, so the idea that people could buy property when essentially the, as part of like these economic reforms, the government tried to like essentially make it possible for local governments to make money by selling property, like by selling land to private companies, uh, developers who can then build these apartment buildings, skyscrapers on this, you know, what used to be farmland or whatever that was like a way for local governments to make money because like in China, uh, the way that taxes work is like taxes go to the central government. Local governments cannot levy their own taxes. So primarily the way that they make money uh, for the last 30 years is to sell land to developers. Um, and then like at first this worked because there was a lot of land and uh, you know, there was like a huge market because people weren't able to buy uh, housing before. So now you had people being like, okay, I'm going to buy, um, when you start to have this like more income and you start to save and you start to be like, okay, I can buy, you know, not only like one apartment, but I can buy two apartments, three apartments. Like this is actually how I'm going to save my money. Uh, it is by investing in property because the real estate market just keeps going up, you know, and the government will guarantee that it goes up. Um, partly because local governments need that money. They need the developers to keep buying land. So they need that property to keep going up. Plus everybody has investments in there, including like communist officials. Like they put a lot of the money that they get through bribery and corruption into these um, real estate markets as well. So, you know, everybody had this vested interest in the property market keep going, uh, like mm. increasing, increasing. And then every time you think that the bubble is going to pop, the government will save the private developers from Yeah, I, I forget what it was. It was maybe 18 months, uh, maybe two years ago, that um, one of the big um, real estate banks um, was on the verge of going under. It was rescued by the Chinese, and a lot of people okay. were saying that that was going to be the moment. So what was that, Chris? Probably Evergrande. Yes, Evergrande. You're thinking. Yeah, so 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 you know, we feel that they're sort of in the same sort of situation as a lot of these Western countries. They are just basically uh, trapped in a debt spiral at this point. And they kind of are a one-trick pony, like in terms of, like I said, like the 
the local governments are, you know, basically dependent on these land sales. So uh, in the same way that the way that the Chinese economy grows is through GDP growth, right? So through infrastructure development, uh, because every time you build something that adds to GDP. So if you've got a target of, you know, this year we have to reach like 5.5% GDP, 6% GDP, like how you're going to do it is by building bridges, even if you don't need them, building apartment buildings, even if no one's going to live with them, in them. And so like they're financing all of this now through like increasing amounts of debt, but like they can't really stop doing that because that would essentially, you know, grind the whole economy to a halt and all of the all of the numbers that they need to show like these communist local communist officials need to show their superiors that they're you know they're doing something right so they don't get fired like that they're all incentivized to keep building on more and more debt yeah i mean I, i've always been um you know, sort of reticent to, to use gdp as my sort of primary measure for the economy because i mean well in, in china's case in particular you are dependent on the government to tell you what that number is in the first place um, but secondly, it's just a measure of spending. It doesn't tell you whether that spending is particularly useful. You can literally build a bridge to nowhere and, or, you know, or, or, or empty skyscrapers and it still counts towards GDP. What about the, the living standards of Chinese people? Are, are, people? are Chinese people continuing to see that improvement in living standards and, and the prospects for their children? I think that is the big thing that is uh, changing China right now. After the Tiananmen Square massacre, there really was this kind of Faustian bargain the party made with the people that if you don't protest, if you accept no political or social reform or freedom, uh, you'll have a chance to get rich. Um, or maybe your children will. But uh, so particularly as it regards to the real estate, what, what happened with Evergrande was that uh, with this whole debt model, people would buy apartments that didn't exist. Evergrande would then take that money and build those apartments. But uh, over time, they started to run out of money. Those apartments wouldn't be built, but people had already bought apartments that don't exist and were still paying mortgages on a house that didn't exist. Um, so from that one aspect, again, as Shelley was mentioning, real estate is the primary investment sector for what you would call the Chinese middle class. Uh, so that's failing. And even if you do own a, a home in China, the, the market is such that it's very difficult to sell homes anymore. So basically uh, any liquidity you have is, is stuck in that home. You can't actually get that money out of the house. Uh, the zero COVID policy uh, and the complete destruction of the Chinese economy that caused, that was also a case of, oh, maybe our children aren't going to have a better life for us. Than, than we did as, as kids. Uh, you see the massive youth unemployment. And again, what they did with education was very similar to what they did with uh, infrastructure and all aspects of the economy that, you know, there's this promise like, go to, go to university, get these degrees. Uh, there'll, be, there'll be something better for you if you do that. And now Chinese youth are finding that there are actually no jobs. And the amount of, uh, the Chinese education system is incredibly competitive. Uh, in fact, culturally, that's considered one of the only places in Chinese society where people can compete on even footing. It's how well you do on your uh, high school exit exam, the Gaokao. Uh, you, if you do well, you can compete with even the daughter of a communist official. Um, but 
what does it mean if you go to university and can't find a job, you can't find a home? For men, uh, there's because of the sex selective abortion from the one child policy, yeah. people were only allowed one child. There are now 30 million more men than there are women. So you have a huge population of young men who can't find a wife, who can't find a job. It's it's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, let, let, let's talk about that because, of course, we, we, we're talking about GDP growth. But I mean, essentially, what GDP is? I mean, it's it's um, you know GDP per capita times capita, and 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 you know the capita, the number of people that's that's in serious decline because of this this, this one child policy. How is the how are the Chinese authorities responding to this challenge of that declining population? I've gone on record as saying that I believe that within the next 10 years or so, we will start to see the government starting to go in the opposite direction of the one child policy and trying, trying to coerce people to have children. I mean, we're already seeing um, like they in the last 10 years, they went from the one child policy to a two child policy. And now it's a three child policy. And essentially, like now it's kind of like have as many children as you want, but nobody wants to have more than one kid because of the economic situation in China. It's very expensive raise kids and you've had this generation of like only children who don't have any problem with being only children and they're looking at it increasingly expensive like cost of living and they're like well why would i have more than one kid it's i'm like pouring all my resources into this one kid uh, i don't have the money to have more kids so um the government don't really, even want one yeah like, and, and I mean, we, yeah, we, people we, can't we, find we, a job you don't want would a three-child policy be as coercive as the one-child policy was? Because, I mean, the one-child policy was quite strict. I mean, are they going to start arresting yeah. people who don't have three children? I mean, how, how would that actually work? Well, right now, it's kind of just like we are going to encourage you to have more kids. Okay. Um, you know, when my mom gave birth to me in China, it was in the 80s, so the one-child policy was, like, at its, you know, like, because it was implemented in, like, 1980. So, like, that was, like... The first decade of it and yeah. like the enforcement was very like it could be very different depending on like where you lived if you were in a more urban area like you had you got pregnant oh yeah the family planning uh was one of the ways that governments made money because they could fine people for having more than one kid and the fine would be equivalent to like a year of salary or more depending on wow. like what level of society you're in and if you could not pay that, then that's when like the forced abortions and things came in. Uh, although for more rural areas where like people would not be able to pay that kind of money, like the forced abortions were a lot. I mean, like it was very barbaric, like because the way that China exists under the communist system, like a lot of things are like targets, right? Like you have your GDP target, but you might also have a target like you're not allowed to have more than, you know, 100 births in a year in this county or something like that. And so officials, there are now stories coming to light of like, I mean, these are extreme cases. It's not the way it was around the whole country, but there are, yeah. you know, things coming to light about how like local officials literally were um, killing babies like that had already been born. So they wouldn't have to report uh, that they had like, you know, wow. violated the, the target number of children born, you know, like it's just like very these. Important. It's very important. Like, yeah. They love the Shanghai skyline imagery. Yeah. All of this is what's behind that. Yeah. I mean, like it is, it is horrifying. And like what the one child policy created is kind of this um, almost like permanent underclass in China, because um, there's also the hukou system, which is like a household registration system. So 
if you have like a rural hukou, like a, you cannot go and live and work in urban areas legally. So what started to happen is that like, you know, but like all the factory jobs are in urban areas. So people would kind of, you know, have to leave their children behind to go work in these urban areas. Like if you had an undocumented second child, um, they would not have a huko. So they don't have a household registration. So they become essentially like an illegal immigrant in their own in country. Their own country. Where, like, Extraordinary. They can't go to school. Um, they can't get like official medical care if they don't have like this household registration. So like you have this like kind of hidden population of people. And so like that 30 million number of more men than women, that might not be accurate because we actually don't know how many people had girls and then like they just weren't reported. Like they tried to hide them from the government so that they could live essentially. Okay. Um, So is China not inclined to approach this the same way that Western countries do, which is to simply import people? Because, of course, you've got, you've, got a, you've got a huge amount of people in Southeast Asia and India that you could bring on to do a lot of these, uh, the, these factory jobs. Do, do they not want to approach it through immigration? They're not a very immigration-friendly country right now. They may have to mm. change that as their you know, workforce population gets older, fewer people are able to work in factories, uh, you know, fewer people want those factory jobs uh, right. because they're you know, now blue collar jobs. They're now seen as less, you know, enticing as they were like 15 years ago when like that was a real stepping stone to making more money. But like now people are like, oh, they want more, you know, white collar jobs. But like, mm-hmm. it could happen, but it's not currently like government hasn't currently um, done that yet. Like they're just trying to enforce this more like have more babies, essentially. Um, you know, they're giving right now incentives like, oh, you know, maybe like childcare incentives, like money, like to help offset some of the costs, but that's still not working right yeah. now. Uh, they're trying to um, get people to have, get married, have kids younger, which goes against like the education message that they've been pushing for decades, which is like get higher education degrees. And like, um, about a decade or 15 years ago, they actually started this campaign called about like leftover women, um, where the China All Women's, uh, the China Women's Federation, which is the official like feminist organization of the Chinese Communist Party, um, started this campaign to call women who are over the age of 26, um, highly educated women over the age of 26 who weren't married yet, they called them leftover women. And they started this whole propaganda campaign about how you don't want to be a leftover woman, you know, like nobody's going to want you. Uh, And the purpose of that was to shame these women into getting married and having kids younger, uh, not just to increase the quantity of the population, but to increase the quality of the population. And like they would use words like, you know, increasing the quality of the population, Um, which I mean, to us in the West sounds a little like, eugenics but like yeah yeah they're they're but like the the trying to make is that right you know yeah when did the one child policy end uh it ended um about a decade ago i forget the exact year covid time okay so I'm, I'm just thinking if, if, if it started in the early ago. 80s, so I mean, you're, you're going to get a reduced supply of people in their 40s. And if it ended about a decade ago, 
Um, I mean, so it's, it's really over the course of the sort of the next 20 years, you're going to get that really strong impact on the working age population. I mean, it, it seems like this is a problem that um, is really going to hit home for China in the 2030s and 2040s in, in quite a serious way, unless they unless they change something significant, which is to go to because if again, if you if, if you try and you know shame women into having more children now, you got another 20 year lag, and that's not going to do you anything until <laughs> until later in the 2040s. Like the idea of having foreigners come in and work, um, I don't think the Chinese Communist Party would like that one because. You have a whole population of people coming into the country who have not been from birth ideologically educated the way the mm. party wants. That adds an element of instability. Also, typically what happens when people move to a country to work, especially factory type jobs, they want to make money to send back to their families in their home countries. The Chinese Communist Party has very tight controls over how much money people can uh, get out of China because they don't want money leaving China. I think they put a limit of uh, it's $50,000 a year that you can take out of China. There are all kinds of ways uh, top communist officials get around that so they I'm can sure be, they you know, buy apartments in New York. Yeah. But so if I, that would be a big barrier to yeah. anyone coming to the country that they couldn't send it money yeah. back to their families. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.